previously on The Avatar Returns. Um, I had to check multiple times to make sure this wasn't written by Dan Herman. Bloodbending is the force lightning of this universe, I guess. The dark side is strong, kids. Remember that it's worth it. I, I need to confess something, which is that I straight up do not remember this episode. You pulled, you pulled an Arlo, buddy, I'm sorry. Is there any liquid she can't bend with? Why you kick a pow? Swamp benders. Those motherfuckers. And I know, oh, I know they're gonna come back because of course they will. Well, this is the kind of wacky time-wasting nonsense I've been missing. You guys, I still think at some point we should do a bonus episode about the Shyamalan movie. Oh, damn you, Arlo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm Paul. I'm Eric. And I'm Arlo. And each week we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Uh, This week, endings are hard, guys. Uh, Long-form storytellers have struggled for years with the challenge of building to a satisfying, cathartic climax, something that pays off all the various character arcs and plot threads that have drawn the audience through the narrative from the very beginning. Uh, People argue over how successful even the most acclaimed of series have been, like Battlestar Galactica, The Sopranos, Mad Men, um, Angel. Uh, It's notoriously difficult to please everybody, so uh, even even if, or or maybe especially if, the larger body of the story that you've told has been well-received. So... Tonight, we're going to discuss how well we think creators Brian Konetsko and Michael Dante DiMartino did with the Avatar The Last Airbender series finale, Sozin's Comet. Uh, It's a big one. Man, this is what we've been building to. Uh, Eric has been vibrating with excitement for weeks now uh, to get here. Uh, But before we get into it, let's... uh, Let's talk a little bit about how and why we started this damn podcast in the first place uh, and what it's been I like. I started this podcast because you would not shut up about it. <laughs> well, Arlo, you've been the resident noob this whole time, so why don't you remind us how you got roped into this madness? I got roped into this the way I get roped into very many things uh, in life, on this, on podcasts, etc., because Paul becomes obsessed with something and will not let it go. <laughs> Will not almost as if he's holding a, a a grudge against anyone who has not watched and enjoyed it. Um, he 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 wouldn't let it go, and so I had to just submit to his will, uh, and 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 watch this fucking cartoon. I don't know what the fuck uh, you're talking about, man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I got, I got roped into this, but I say I got roped into it, but I I had been wanting to watch it for a long time because I'd heard such good things about it, and uh, I'm I'm really really glad. Uh, I got roped into it. All right. I guess we'll, we can loosen the ropes then. No, 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 no. no. Not, not, not so fast. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. Not so fast. All right. Well, what about you, Eric? How did, uh, how'd we blackmail you into doing this? Uh, well, I, I drank those memories away a couple months ago, so <laughs> I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I know you, you've been, uh, Arlo's right that, that you are extremely excited about doing this and, and I did not need to be roped into it so much as I just needed to wait for the moment when it was actually going to happen. I, I had 
I think you started asking me right after I had finished my first watch through of Korra, so it wasn't that long ago. And I was really interested in going back to watching Avatar because my feelings on Korra were very surprising to me. So this was an opportunity to go back and watch both and really dig into those feelings. And, and thus, you are all stuck with me. I actually think I'm to blame for why, uh, for how long it took this show to come to fruition because I was recording – I was in the, the thick of recording uh, Smoke It's In Your Ears, the, the Mad Men podcast. That's right. And Paul was adamant that we start as soon as possible and I, I, I could not do – I could not commit to three weekly podcasts at a time, much to Paul's chagrin. But I, I think it worked out. You are like a podcast half-stepper, man. You do not commit. This is, podcast is life. What's wrong with you? I know. I need, I need to stop it with these half measures. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, so uh, I guess we've all, we're all happy that we did it, though, right? However, however pained and forced the beginning may have been, we're happy that we've reached this point. Despite the fact I mean, that this podcast necessitates Eric's weekly presence in my life, I've really <laughs> enjoyed the experience. Yeah, I, you know, and other than the Swamp Benders, uh, the Great Divide, and um, I, I think there's one other episode. Fuck you if you say the prison episode. Fuck you if you say the prison episode. Oh, the prison episode. <laughs> I Damn am, it. Yes, then the Dai and the Dai Li. Other than those, I'm very happy. Okay. So, All right. Well, I will say that, um, uh, as, as I've mentioned many times on this show, I, I've I've watched Avatar – all the way through multiple times. This is, I don't know what, maybe my fourth or fifth time through. And, uh, but I had a different experience with it this time. Um, I, the, just the act of having to meet with you guys every week and, and actually talk through the storylines and the character development and all that. It's given me uh, a different, possibly better appreciation for the show. And certainly for some of the characters, I have a, I have a, I've had an epiphany about Azula. So congratulations, Eric, you've, You've brought the truth of Azula into my life. Oh, wow. Wow, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. that. That's a much bigger win than I was expecting. <laughs> so I, she's still not my favorite I... character in the show, but I, I, I'm much, I'm, I like her so much more now, having discussed her with you guys. So. Oh, that's important. That makes it's us all good. worth it. There, see? Some good can come of podcasts. Podcasts are changing lives, people. Life. Um, changing life. <laughs> <laughs> It has changed one person's life, Paul, and that person is you. <laughs> and that's all that matters. That's really all that matters. Okay. Did you have anything else to say there, Arlo? Um, no, I'm just I'm I'm glad that you like Azula as well, because I know this is my first time through, but I really um I I really enjoyed her like villainous presence and I also I we're not gonna get into it yet, but I also really enjoyed the uh, emotional underpinnings of her story. Yeah. All right, well, um, Let's quit beating around the bush then and uh, get to it. So this, um, I didn't give it a chapter numbers at the top of the show because this is a four-part series finale that was actually aired as a single film, a single movie, Sozin's Comet. But um, I did take my notes breaking down, broken down into four parts. But Eric, I knew you'd want it this way. Arlo talked me into, into doing it this way. We can talk about it as just one single piece instead of breaking it down by chapters. So I, I'm so glad you all decided this, not because I really cared what the decision was, but because I legitimately couldn't feel, figure out how we should discuss this. So I'm so glad that someone else made the decision. <laughs> and I, and I think, um, 
I think it's okay to talk about it this way. I think there, I think there would be some merit in breaking it down episode by episode because I think it's impressive how, um, because obviously when you're doing a big four part episode like this, one, I don't even know if they knew it was going to air in the same night when they when they made it but even if they did you have to build each episode so that it can act independently of the others in syndication Mm -hmm. and i think they did a really good job of that however that being said i think it would be really tough to just stick to like episode by episode for this one since we're going to want to talk about all of it yeah and the first two episodes are very much set up i mean this this works like a movie and i think it would be like trying to discuss the first like 45 minutes of an hour and a half movie so Mm -hmm. It's a good call. It's a good call. This way we can just talk about it. So let, let's talk about let's talk about that ending. Sorry, <laughs> I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. So for the record, for those playing along at home, this is uh, Sozin's comet is actually four chapters, three eighteen through three twenty one. The individual titles are Part One: The Phoenix King, Part Two: The Old Masters, Part Three: Into the Inferno, and Part Four: um, Avatar Aang. But Discussing it as a single uh, individual film, Sozin's Comet, Arlo, take it away. First of all, I want to say all of the series finales you mentioned at the beginning that were kind of divisive, Mm -hmm. I loved all of them. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when it comes to a lot of series finales, not all, because there have been bad ones, um, but I think when it comes to a lot of series finales, especially, and I think this is true for all the ones that you mentioned, the reason they're so divisive is because they underline what the show, what those shows always were in a way that some viewers, you know, chose to ignore or didn't recognize. Like Battlestar Galactica underlined how spiritual mm-hmm. that show always was. Um, the Sopranos underlined the core message of that show, which was that people don't change. Nothing ever ends. Um, and Angel, I think, is maybe the best example because that is the perfect summation of, of what that show was, of how the fight never ends, and there are people who were baffled by it, which I, which I, goes to show there are a lot of ways to watch a TV show. I almost didn't include Angel in that list because I I actually forgot that Angel that the Angel finale was ever divisive. I thought Angel was universally loved. It, it is. It, I feel like it, it it's loved for the most part, but there are fans who don't like it. Right. But I, I mention that to say that I I think. A lot of times these finales get unwarranted hate for not being exactly what what like for not fitting a certain viewer's conception of what the show would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't uh, from how you guys reacted, I assume the Avatar finale uh, was was well received. Um, There there are aspects of it that are there's really well, there's really only one aspect of it that I might question. And I know we'll get to that later. Um, But overall, I have to say this really was I think this belongs on the list of the finales you mentioned earlier. Um, it is one. I think it's one of the most satisfying series finales I've seen, whether it be you know live action or animated, adult TV or kids TV. It really, it was incredibly satisfying on an emotional level, on a plot level. Um, I cried. I laughed. I I was when you know th- when the end comes up in both English and Chinese characters, mm-hmm. which I thought was such a great touch. I was completely and utterly elated. I I, I loved this uh, th- these four episodes, this single you know movie. I loved it so much. Uh, that is 
awesome. I'm overjoyed to hear that. I uh, I want to share. I'm scrolling back through our DMs because I want to share. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did DM d- DM you a few things while I was watching it. Um, where there is was it? one. Um, I think I know what one you're looking for. <laughs> um, damn it! Where'd it go? Was, was it uh, the one about Iro? Yeah. Okay, I found it. I found it. So when the uh, we, we don't necessarily have to jump to this topic of discussion either, but uh, I uh, I DM'd you in all caps. Zuko Iro reunion scene tears everywhere. Um, oh, and here I, it I was, is. Yeah. I yeah, I was it. I was going on about that, and then I I quoted uh, Iro says goodbye everyone today. Destiny is our friend. I know it. And my next my next thing was fuck you for making me watch this stupid show if Iro bites it. <laughs> Because that sounds like the thing someone says right before they die tragically. Yeah. And of course, at, at the time, I forgot this was this was a Nickelodeon show, so Iroh was not going to die. No, um, they, they I mean, I think they did a pretty extraordinary job in this of, they broke it up into three storylines. There were three um, battles, basically, that are happening. Three groups of characters involved in separate battles. And they make it absolutely conceivable that in at least one of those battles, there's going to be tragedy. Yeah, it's true. And I think it's very much to the show's credit and to the writer's credit that even though this is a Nickelodeon show and people don't really die, I mean, we know that a couple characters died, but you know, like in the, the Ember Island players, they joked about the fact that I think Jet died or (laughs) stuff like that. So even though I knew these characters probably were not going to actually die, there was still like sufficient tension and drama that I forgot that for a second. And I really did. Like I was prepared to lose my shit if Iroh died. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm obviously I'm thrilled that Iroh does not die in this, but I, I almost wish that they had, that they had faked you out for a minute just so I could have experienced your reaction. (laughs) (laughs) And see, that's how successful this project was for me. It got to the point where I was prepared to like shed tears over this, this old man, this old cartoon man dying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about you, Eric? Did this, how, how did this live up uh, on your, is this your second viewing now? Yeah, this is my second viewing. Right. Um, I, so this is this was on the first viewing one of my favorite finales ever. It, it I, I, we may have talked a little bit before about this, but um, you know, one of my favorite franchises in in anime or ever is Gundam. And one of the things Gundam has always done really well is pull off these big finales where like every single um, rivalry, every single like aspect of what you want gets like played out in these beautiful action finales. And Avatar is one of the only American series that pulled that off, that did this big action finale where you have this multi-leveled battle and every single character who's been growing their entire time gets to use the skills they've been growing in interesting ways. And I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. So all of that stuff had hit me really well the first time. And all of that stuff still hit me really well this time, especially in the third and fourth episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that stuff really still nailed me. I will say that the the handful of things that bothered me the first time through bothered me a little more mm, okay. this time but not ne- not enough to make me dislike the finale at all i still love this i still think it's fantastic um i don't those those complaints probably 
tie into other complaints I've had with the series otherwise. So I don't think it's a big surprise. It doesn't feel like a betrayal of the show in any way. And overall, I'm still like fist pumping through that entire last, like basically, I guess the last 45 minutes <laughs> of the of the episode yeah. um, are still mostly fantastic to me. So I'm really glad I rewatched it. I think that it kind of seeded it as one of one of my favorite finales ever. But um, and it, it definitely had pretty much everything from the point at which Sokka goes against the airships on um, is just a, a blast to watch. <laughs> Yeah, um, so uh, a recurring theme of this podcast is that uh, I have to uh, drool over every fight sequence, uh, every every bit of fight choreography that they've done on this series. Um, this, <laughs> the final two chapters of Sozin's Comet uh, blows absolutely everything that they've ever done in the rest of the series to this point, blows it out of the water like it is orders of magnitude beyond anything else they've ever done. Um, some of my favorite action sequence in any television series. I would say, I would say that, <clears throat> excuse me, the fights in these final episodes, now granted, I, I think I've talked on the show before about how I haven't seen very much anime where it seems like they would excel in this kind of thing. So don't quote me on this, but from the TV that I've seen, I think Avatar, these, these fights in these episodes may be the best fight scenes I've ever seen on TV. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, I agree. That's how I feel about them. So, um. yeah, I, I watch a lot of anime and I can say that generally speaking, the animation and choreography side of their fight sequences very rarely live up to what we got in this. It happens occasionally. Um, Bebop being one of the ones that has some pretty incredible fight sequences. But that said, this is. This is at a level that very, very few shows operate on when it comes to action. In fact, the only show that I am going to say that we, I'm going to, I would, would challenge Avatar on a really serious level is Korra. And, and All that's right. about it, which is, which says something. All so right. that's how good this, the end of the choreography is in this. Yeah. Um, I might as well take this opportunity to say it. So, um, I've watched Avatar more than I've watched Korra. I think I've watched Korra through twice. And, um, my my feeling right now uh still i'm still in the high of having watched sozin's comet uh so take that for you know take that into consideration but my feeling right now is this stuff like this finale the fight sequences here and and the emotional payoff we get here for me is way better than i mean not way better but it is my favorite of both series um there there's nothing in cora that reaches this level for me personally. Now, as we go through Korra, that may change. I'm, I'm remembering a couple fights in Korra that are pretty spectacular, but I don't know. Right now, I'm feeling like emotionally, this is the high point of both shows for me. I think that's actually a really important point about the fight sequences in this, is that I actually don't think on a choreography level, these are their best fights. Or even a, a, like a staging level. I think if we went back, and I really would need to go back and look at some things to see, but I think Avatar has had better technical fights than many of the fights in this episode. What really works, and this is what this makes this finale so good, is that those fights are emotionally seated mm -hmm. in the characters' journeys at this point, especially Zuko, Azula, um, Katara. That fight sequence especially, but a, a lot of them are culminations of things that we've been building up to. And the best choreography in the world is a blast to watch, but 
the culmination of a fight you've been waiting for is just exquisite. And that's what makes these fights so good. You're, you're absolutely right. I, you, there have been probably more elaborate and, and more carefully. Yeah, I think now, again, obviously this is only my first time through, but trying to think back through the, the fight scenes that we've seen, maybe the, the best in terms of pure choreography that I can think of right now is I think there was one in season two that was like, it was, uh, Zuko and Iroh and the Angang and Azula and May and Ty Lee, like all of them, like back and forth. I think it was the, the like the High Noon one, mm-hmm. the one in the little Western town. Mm-hmm. I remember being really blown blown away by that one, on like a technical choreography level. And maybe nothing in in this finale is as as polished as that. But yeah, you're right. The the emotion that I felt during these fight scenes, it, I think it's a really difficult thing to pull off emotion in a fight scene uh it, it does it doesn't always come come through and i think it was absolutely successful in these a good a good fight sequence is sort of um good writing structure in in sort of microcosm that in order to pull off a good final fight you have to be paying off something it has to be the release of a level of tension that you've been building up to you have to really want that fight it can't just be a fight that happens you have to have needed that fight for the entirety of the story and that's what's really going on here is that we needed Zuko and Azula to fight. We needed it. And we didn't know that we needed Katara to kick the shit out of her at the end. But when it happened, we knew we needed that too. And same thing goes for General uh, General Asaka, basically. It was like Sokka was – we've loved his plans the entire time. And on some level, we needed Sokka's general skills to be as awesome as they are in the airship battles. So those all work because they, they fulfilled the story need that we had internalized. And that's what makes everything about this episode, especially the last two episodes of Susan's Comet. So unbelievably successful. So Um, we've kind of tiptoed around it and Paul, I I don't know if you want to talk about it right now. I think we should definitely save the final fight for, for toward the end of the episode. But since we've already mentioned it, do you think it would be okay if we dug into that Zuko Azula fight scene. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's actually what I want to talk about, so we might as well get to okay, it. Okay, good. Yeah, I I, I was really surprised um, by like as Eric said, like I you know this was we we've been waiting for this Zuko Azula Grand Roy- Royale fight scene for the entire series and it was really satisfying and then to throw Katara in the mix and have it be just as satisfying is is super impressive and I think um I think this fight scene is markedly different than any other fight in the series um as soon as it begins like there's this really mournful music uh mm-hmm. during it as Zuko and Azula fight the you know if they do their Agni Kai thing um, it's really, it, it's not, because a lot of fight scenes and a lot of the fight scenes on the show are really exciting and thrilling, and this was not that. This felt necessary, but it also felt very sad. Like, this was inevitable, and it was just really sad to watch, you know, these, these two siblings who, you know, have never gotten along, who have always on some level, you know, had some sort of contempt for each other. Uh, fighting each other, and it's sort. It was sort of like their their family history in microcosm. Um, the the um, so the thing that this does with Azula, that this uh, this finale in general, but this fight sequence in particular does with Azula is 
um, it, it draws into sharp focus <laughs> something that for some reason on all my previous viewings, it never really quite registered for me. And that is that Azula is actually the more tragic version of Zuko. I was going to say literally the exact same thing. This is, this is, I think you're going exactly where I was going to go. So she, I mean, she has had just as messed up an upbringing as Zuko did. Zuko is the one that outwardly suffered the most. He's the one that rebelled against, or, or I mean, he didn't really rebel, but I mean, he's the one that suffered on the outside more than Azula did because Azula embraced, you know, her fa their father's darkness. She, nobody ever told Azula no, because she would not let them. Whereas Zuko it, deep down inside is, you know, a nice guy. So he wasn't quite as forceful perhaps as Azula was, but, um, but they both suffered under the, the tyranny of their father. And Azula, in fact, also suffered with her, her uh, shattered relationship with their mother. Azula is the, is the tragedy that Zuko could have become, mm -hmm. which is why her, breakdown in these episodes leading to their fight with Zuko is is very sad mm -hmm. because this is this is what Zuko could have been he could have been just as at war with himself as Azula is and and Iroh keeps talking about how Zuko's at war with himself and it's very clear that though though Azula is damaged on a level that Zuko is not maybe he she's still is at war with herself in a way that becomes really obvious once May and Ty Lee um, dump her, basically. Right. Right. And she can't trust anyone anymore, and she completely falls apart. And so it's 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 de it's a very sad ultimate victory because she is not in a state where you feel triumphant over it. And I think Zuko especially has no joy in, in his sister going down in that end. Yeah, one of the great things about that fight is that it – the the end of it is not triumphant like we've we've wanted ever since azula first showed up actually before azula showed up before we even really got to know azula we wanted azula to get her ass kicked she was the the snotty sister that uh you know was abusive to zuko um so we've just we've gone so long with wanting to see her you know get what's coming to her and uh these two characters, Zuko and Katara, both have reasons to to put her in her place, but neither one of them is particularly satisfied by the conclusion. And I think that's really important because this is coming just a few episodes after, um, you know, Zuko coming to Aang and telling him, you know, violence was not the answer when he went with Katara to... Uh, you know, take revenge on the man who killed her mother. And then he asks saying, you know, what are you going to do when you face my father? And that was a question that the show had never really tackled before. And so I think it's really appropriate that when it comes to Zuko, you know, taking revenge on his sister, that it doesn't end on a triumphant note. It ends on the, it's, it's, again, it's very sad. It ends on a very sad note. It's, uh, it's sad because of, I mean, the broader tragedy. Uh, it's sad because of the, the look on Zuko and Katara's faces when it's all over. It's chilling. Like it's hauntingly sad because of our final shot of Azula.
Like the, our, our final glimpse of Azula is one of the most emotionally devastating things that the series has done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but the, the other side of this coin and I'm, I'm entirely with you and this, and Paul, you're getting at why I love Azula as a character so much is that she's a delightful villain as a villain and also very sad, which is what makes great villains really work. You know, it doesn't go out of its way to pretend like she wasn't awful, but it also makes her sad. But the other side of this is that Katara's defeat of her is fucking awesome. Yes. I mean, Katara continues to be the most badass uh, waterbender. The, I just love the creativity of this victory that, you know, because Katara can't go toe to toe with her right now because Azula's uh, juiced up on comet power or whatever. So. The fact that she free, I love that she freezes her, but gets that chain, and then the the visual of her breathing out and melting the water mm-hmm. around her is just um, just such an amazing and memorable visual. And I I love I love when people use their powers creatively for a victory, and it's just mm-hmm. a matter of who can punch harder. Right. So this is my my exact type of win. I love it. I just love that win. Yeah, that was awesome, and it really made me feel inadequate as a writer. Um, like a, a lot of these fights do, how inventive they are. Like I, again, I just want to. I always like to remind people that the the character that I created for for our book that we did with all the people with all the superpowers is a guy who fucking turns on electronics. That's what I came up with. I couldn't do any of the stuff they do on Avatar, so I am c- constantly blown away by the invention on display. Uh, wow. It's, uh... So, so Paul, you said you f- you feel a lot differently about Azula this time through, and I, I want to know. Um, I feel like these episodes in particular uh, show how damaged she has become. Like she's always been damaged because you don't become that cartoonishly evil without some sort of damage. Um, but after May and Ty Lee betrayed her, she sort of you know. For a while now, it's been pretty clear that no one likes Azula. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not anyone who follows her. Not because they like or respect her, but because they fear her. And then when uh, May and Ty Lee stand up to her, that sort of shatters the illusion for her that she has anyone who follows her because, you know, of who she is. Right. Um, and so we see her really having a meltdown uh, in these episodes. I mean, to the point where she... You know, she fires all of the Dai Li. She fires, uh, I forget which one, but she fires one of Lo and Lee. Um, she, you know, is about, she cuts her own hair. Like, that's a, a classic hallmark sign of a crazy person. Uh, and she even says, like... Okay, hair, prepare to meet your doom. Exactly, yeah. This is, this, this is not a well person. And it, did, did that have anything to do with uh, with how you felt about her this time? Just seeing her... Like seeing like the, the the gradual like emotional uh, decay of Azula. Well, I mean, obviously, I saw all that um, right. every time I watched the show. But uh, every time I've watched it before, when we weren't when I wasn't discussing it with people and we weren't like analyzing it, and I wasn't hearing other people's takes on on character motivation and all that stuff, I just I didn't have to think about her as much. For the most part, I just allowed myself to be annoyed by how truly fucking obnoxious she is. And generally speaking, on a surface level, when a character is that obnoxious, I usually just want them to get bitch slapped into a coma. I just characters, there's a certain kind of obnoxious where it 
on the surface, it becomes not interesting to me. Uh, they, they're just, they're just characters that I don't enjoy and I just want them to suffer and get off my screen. So I think in large part, um, that's kind of how I viewed Azula before all this. And all of, I mean, all of the tragedy is there. All the stuff that you just talked about has been there every time I've watched the show. I just, I didn't allow myself really to pay attention to it. And this time talking about it with you guys, I've been forced to actually look at it and, and take it in. And so I, I now acknowledge and embrace the trauma and tragedy that is the life and times of Azula. I'm glad. I'm glad because I really, I really felt for her through this whole thing. I'm not saying you know, I liked her. Like I wouldn't want to get a drink with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wouldn't deign to get a drink with me in the first place. Um, but I, I really enjoyed her character and the arc that she went through. Mm-hmm. Even I with certainly want to play beach volleyball against her. No, no. <laughs> uh, it's not a good yeah. idea for anyone. Uh, so Arlo, you mentioned, before we get back to the show in general, you mentioned the the music specifically in the uh, Zuko Azula Agni Kai. Um, and we, we've never really talked about the music on this show before. It's been... Uh, the track team is the the duo of Jeremy Z- Jeremy Zuckerman and Benjamin Wynn. They're the uh, composers and music editors and sound editors uh, on this show from the very beginning, and we've never really talked about what they have done for the show up to this point. But at this point, we cannot ignore them because um, for Sozin's Comet, this was the first time that they decided and and they were going to do it on their own dime they wanted to do this and they were going to pay for it and when this when nickelodeon found out they were like uh they said no 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 we'll pay for it if you if you feel that strongly about it we'll pay for it Uh, they used a live orchestra for the music in these episodes um and before they'd all they'd used um like midi format music and just uh you know electronic music so if there's any if you've noticed a tonal or a quality difference in the music in these episodes, that's why. And I feel like it really shines in that fight because in that fight, the basically all of the bat, all of the diegetic sound effects drop out, except you can still hear the fire, but like, it's just the music that plays over that. It, it really makes for a very different fight sequence than we've seen because of that. And it's great because it's like very, it's a little more impressionistic of a fight scene it's not really about the mechanics of the fight mm-hmm. which which makes it work really well which is good because we've seen Z- Zuko and Azula uh, go at it enough times at this point that just doing another really great fight sequence would not necessarily distinguish itself and that music makes a big difference and I did not know that it was a live orchestra but I did notice the music in a way that I don't usually notice it in the show yeah. so that that definitely explains why I did they actually um they were nominated for a Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing in a Television anima- in Television Animation um, for this. Oh, really? Uh, I don't believe that they won, but they were nominated. This was the only time they were nom- nominated. I want to know who the hell won. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, let's talk. Since this is <laughs> theoretically, this is Aang's show. Let's talk a little bit about Aang's journey. Um, 
I'm actually glad to start, to start talking about him because most of my issues with – actually, I want to say all of my issues with the finale probably loop around Aang's story in some way, shape, or form. Okay. So. I feel like all three of us are going to agree on what the quote-unquote issue or issues are in this, and so we can build up to that. But um, I suspect I probably have fan-wanked my way out of it, perhaps more than the two of you have. So – We'll see when we get there. But the, so the, the, um, the last two episodes that we were, were really just the previous one, um, Ember Island players. Uh, when Zuko asked that question, he said, so what are you going to do when you face my father? Um, or that wasn't Ember Island players. That was, uh, whatever the one before that was Southern Raiders. Southern Raiders. Thank you. Uh, that was some people have said that that's like the first time I think maybe we talked about this that that's the first time really that the show has kind of raised the question of yeah Aang what are you going to do when you so so how exactly did you picture beating Ozai what the hell does that look like to you I think we kind of get our answer uh, with the fight between Zuko and Azula because um Whereas Zuko is the one who like is saying, you have to kill my father. There's no, there's nothing else you can do. You have to kill him. I don't, I'm not entirely sure that he was setting out to actually kill his sister in that fight. Right. Um, I, I, no, think, I, don't, I don't think he was. I either. think the, I think the idea there was you just, you basically overpower your opponent and you know, the fight is over at that point. And I think that's kind of been the mentality of the whole series coming up i think subconsciously the viewers and probably the characters have just been expecting i'll go in there i'll be you know ang will go in there he'll slap ozai around a little bit ozai will surrender they'll have a big party there'll be a big yub nub party and everything will be cool and it's only in the very at the very end of the series that the question is raised you know ozai's not going to go down like that I find this question a little weird, and this I guess this is kind of issue number one for me, and it, it's a little more abstract than, than the other ones, which is – and actually, I, I want to thank um, viewer and friend Nick for, for forcing me and us to make sure we talk about this, which is Aang makes a big stink about how he was trained to love all life and never going to kill and no blah, 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 blah. Aang, Aang has killed a lot of people. Let's let's be clear about, about the fact that Aang, as – as Nick said, has a body count. And I'm not going to say he had a individual fight where he like blew someone's head off with a piece of fire, but he did turn into a giant water spirit and trash an entire fire nation fleet. Okay. People I was, died in that. I was actually, I was about to ask you what is his body count? Cause I was trying to remember if there was a time where he conceivably could have killed people and that, that, that might be it. <laughs> there's, there's that, and then there's also the assault with like the the um where the I don't know engineer character, and they're like knocking metal. Oh, well, they're dropping off tanks the off the side of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not these are mostly like those kind of like indirect deaths that you get in kids shows. You know, mm -hmm. like where they don't show someone dying, so the the show is pretending they didn't kill anyone, but no one survives that drop. Yeah, if it was GI no one... Joe, if there were, if it was GI Joe, there'd be parachutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I mean, Aang has certainly taken action that has led to the deaths of others. Maybe he is not directly – okay, as the water spirit, he directly killed people. But throughout the series, he has done things that have certainly led to the deaths of some soldiers that he was fighting. So, Eric, the, with the, with the dropping of the 
with the dropping of the tanks, I mean, has American imperialism taught you nothing except that it, if it's drones, it doesn't count. <laughs> okay, he didn't kill anyone. He just dropped something on them. All right, it, it was just, it was just it was just some Fire Nation soldiers. They didn't have names. That's right. They didn't, have, they didn't even have voice actors. Most of them. What does that matter? <laughs> See, that, that that's my point. Yeah. So, so, anyways, that's why I find the sudden consternation over death, over killing anyone, a little, a, it's it's maybe miswritten because there is a way you could have written his crisis of conscience, which is that like, yeah, I've done things that you know what I mean, like I fought before, but right. I I don't want to go into a fight with the intent to kill someone. You know what I mean? Like that's a fair discussion that. Maybe what he doesn't want to do is go into it where it's like my only option is to blow someone's head off and I don't want that to be how I go into a fight. I, I can get into that idea. Yeah. I mean you – I think realistically the reason why we didn't get that and, – and you're right. They could have done it – it only would have taken a few lines of dialogue probably to seed that. Like Sokka could have even said, well, what about the – what about the guys in the tanks? What about, the, you know, I mean, they could have raised that question, but I, I think realistically the reason that didn't come up is maybe they're just, I mean, there kind of wasn't time or whatever. They didn't feel like there was time. They didn't feel like there was a place where they could do it. I, I think the reason it probably didn't come up is because Nickelodeon probably didn't want them to go around having the main for like a season, having the main character be like, I killed people. I don't want to do it again. Uh, so I, I think they right. admit that he killed anyone in the first place, right? Right. I think it could only come up in the final episode, and then so, so they can then prove that he hasn't killed anyone, right? Uh, this is this is such a <laughs> point that had not even occurred to me. Like I didn't even think about the fact that when he was the giant water spirit, you know, people would have died, and I completely forgot about the drone tanks. Um, so yeah, I didn't. I didn't watching this. I didn't realize that, so it didn't bother me. Um. Now it kind of does. Thanks, Eric. I know it's I'm I'm a I'm a disaster. The, the, the other side of this that, that's bad though, this is what's actually this is an interesting problem for me because the, I feel like it is miswritten and it's not plot it's not a seated issue in the way that the show is actually played out. On the other hand, I really love Avatar after Avatar telling Aang, wake the fuck up, you need to kill this guy. That was great. Like, I, I love that. I really love that that was the show's perspective on on what the Avatar's role was. The Avatar is not a no-kill hero. Well, it's interesting that the way that they did that, too. I think I think the way that was all written, um, I think probably the three of us read that as they were saying, well, yeah, you obviously have to kill. Particularly, interestingly, the uh, Air Nomad, like the, you know, the... The airbender that uh, he was like, you're right, Momo. I need to talk to an airbender. She'll tell me what I want to hear. And she's the one that basically says it comes the closest to saying, no, you've you, you know, you have to sacrifice your own spiritual needs in order to do what it takes to protect the world. Um, we heard all of that as them saying, yes, you're going to have to kill this guy. But it was it was ambiguously enough stated. Like one of them was basically, you must be decisive. One of them said, only justice will bring peace. Uh, one of them said, you must actively shape your own destiny and the destiny destiny of the world. Um, like those, that's ambiguous enough that they, it, it could have been read any number of ways. Okay, but they were totally telling him that he had to kill those. I, I, I'm, like they, that they was were. The point. They were. Yes. 
Yeah, because if that's not the point, then the way it ends is much less satisfying. Here's the really funny thing about these well, conversations. Well, not, not necessarily. It's not necessarily because he – I think one of the points of the show is that he's a 12-year-old kid. And he's – like these other avatars uh, had, had long lives and did lots of things as avatars. Uh, they had many adventures. Um, and we've, we've seen all throughout – like every flashback to avatars we've seen – they are able to like enter the avatar state at will and they don't like lose control when they do it. They just turn on the avatar state. They, they do something fancy and then they turn it back off again. Aang has never been able to do that because he's a child who has not had the opportunity to, to truly train as the avatar the way that everybody else had. Um, so he's a 12 year old. He's interpreting this as a 12 year old. He's terrified. Everybody's been telling him he has to go kill Ozai and he, that's what he's expecting. I mean, that's how he interprets what they say, basically. No, you're, you're right. I mean, they, you're absolutely right in what they're saying is to be decisive. And I like that. I do like that they're saying that. But the other side of it that is really funny to me goes back to the problem that I had, which was um, uh, Kyoshi. He's like, she's like, well, when things were bad, I that guy killed that dude. And he was like, you didn't kill him. He just fell off the rock. And she's like, don't let's not kid ourselves here. Yeah, like, she's that's like, I don't, I don't really see a difference, but don't kid yourself. I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I kind of like that because it actually goes back to the, like, did Aang kill those people with those tanks drops? Like, yeah, okay, you didn't mean to kill those guys, but let's not pretend right. that those people didn't die. So I this actually feels like a situation where I don't think what the writers wanted was Aang never, ever, ever killed, and the discussion is whether or not he is ever killed. I feel like a big part of this discussion was sort of acknowledging in a way that Nickelodeon wouldn't get rid of that – Sometimes bad guys get killed in these fights, and just because you didn't walk up and stab the knife into them doesn't mean them falling off the mountain wasn't your doing. Right. And right. I, I do like that they call that out really explicitly in this episode. I, I, I actually kind of wanted to give them props in this for um, for being as direct as they are with the question of whether or not Aang is going to kill. Because I feel like... Uh, it's gotten a little clearer as the series has gone forward, but certainly in the beginning... Um, it felt like they, you know, wouldn't use the word kill or whatever. Like they, they, we were always talking around things like this and it just, it feels like they're very direct. Like they don't say, well, I mean, there's the line where Suki at the end, Suki walks up to uh, Ozai when he's like semi-conscious on the ground and she's like, uh, did you finish it or whatever? She's, I can't remember what she says, but that's the kind of thing that I think shows like this usually do they don't say did you kill him they say well did you you know did you do it or did you you know did you go all the way whatever and in these episodes in particular like ang specifically ang and others specifically say you have to kill him or i don't know it just it's very very blunt they don't they don't sugarcoat it in these episodes yeah i agree I absolutely agree there. And considering it's a show that's on Nickelodeon, I think that was pretty, that's actually pretty extraordinary. Agreed. Agreed. And, and the, the discussion of death leads him to one of the weirder aspects of this show. The, <laughs> yes, the dragon turtle, the lion turtle, lion turtle, lion turtle. Sorry. Yes. I mean, I mean, I'm in Dungeons and Dragons mode, the lion turtle. Uh, Arlo, what did you think of the lion turtle? Okay, so at first, I I missed the fact that – so, okay, so Aang is unconscious, 
and he and Momo, like, like he gets into a trance and he and Momo wind up on this island. I was a moron when I watched this and I was like, I didn't realize that was the lion turtle shell. So when the gang woke up and all of a sudden Aang was gone, I was like, did they just, did someone, did Ben Linus like push the frozen donkey wheel? Like, <laughs> what the fuck just happened? Why are they not addressing this? And then later when I realized it was the shell, it made a little more sense. But this is one of the more seemingly out of left field choices the show makes. I'm sure Paul's going to talk about this in a second, but he he had pointed out to me the ways in which this was very subtly, like like th- there were indications of, of the lion t- turtle playing an important role throughout the series, but I still I still think this whole thing it it I want to point out it wound up working for me mm-hmm. like the the payoff it worked for me, but I feel like this really could have been seated. A little longer, especially given the fact that we've talked about how the uh, back half of this season was so oddly structured. And actually, I came upon um, uh, Alan Steppenwall. Uh, he, uh, I was surprised to see the date on that. This article was January of last year because I remember when he published it, I was like, "Oh, once Paul finally forces me to watch the show." I'm going to have to come back and, re- and read this. Uh, so that is stuck. I've that piece has stuck with me for a year and a half. Um, he had uh, watched it with his kids and he was taught. I had to skim some of it because he talks about Cora too, but he had mentioned that, uh, and he was actually here. He was uh, praising Cora for the way its seasons are structured because he said that, uh, he was a little like with the way Avatar Avatar tells one story from beginning to end, and he says there's a weird stretch in the final season where it's basically basically run out of material, and the characters are just waiting around for it to end. Um, and I I agree with that to an extent, but I I feel like like this stuff this stuff with the lion turtle and all of this shit like that could have been instead of them just hanging around going on field trips with Zuko they could have been dealing with some of this. Like, this could have been introduced earlier. Um, and honestly, I'm, re- I'm not sure why it wasn't. I, I, I have to go back to my feeling that it, somewhere in their heads, this is not a three-season show. This was a four-season show <laughs> where we got a condensed season three and then the beginning of season four followed by the entire end of season four in Sozin's Comet. That's what it reads like to me. Well, again, I will say that they have stated multiple times it was always a three-season plan, but... And maybe they just didn't realize what they actually had was a four-season plan. Perhaps. They, they, they telling themselves it was a three-season plan. They've also said that they um, that the Lion Turtle concept was a thing that they had wanted to use all along. Like, it was a thing that they'd had in mind early on. I was, and... I was reading on the Avatar Wiki that they conceived of and designed the lion turtle during the production of the first season. Right. So, and, and for whatever reason, they just, I, I don't know if they conceptually decided they were going to wait this, for the end or if they just like never this, got around to doing it, but I love this show and I love this finale, but I have to say this whole thing with the lion turtle, like they had this idea the whole time and never because they they specifically pointed out the uh, Di Martino and Konietzko pointed out that where people have accused the lion turtle of being a Deus ex machina, which it, it 
is. It is. They they have said no, it's not because we knew we knew about him the whole time. That's not the same. That's not a good excuse. It's not a, a, a counter argument that it's not a Deus Ex Machina. Like I again, I love this show. I love this finale. It seems to me like this may be the biggest ball they dropped. Like, how do you have this idea from the very beginning of the show and never use it until the final episode? Especially because he, the drag, drag turtle, the lion turtle plays such an integral role in Deus Ex Machinaing Ang's dilemma away. Like, yeah. it's not just that there's this lion turtle who shows up to give Ang the information that he needs. It's it, not just it, a wise it, old lion turtle, right? It's it's absolutely the only reason Ang doesn't have to kill Ozai. Right. at the end and, now, and so it's, it's very it's it's very not set up to it given that situation there the uh what arlo was was hinting at earlier my my pseudo defense of the lion turtle actually could kind of be used as further argument that the lion turtle was mis was mishandled and that's the fact that they did they did in fact see the lion turtle throughout the series um there were We've seen little images of and statues of lion turtles throughout. Um, sp- specifically, there were several lion turtle statues in, in Master Piandao's garden when Sokka was getting his sword training. Um, and in the in Wang Shutong's, the, uh, the dick spirit, Wang Shutong's uh, <laughs> hidden spirit library, um, the, uh, Aang finds a scroll and he... I believe he even says, look at this cool lion turtle. Like, I think he says that out loud. Um, well, yeah, in, in Piandao, uh compared Saga to a lion turtle. Oh, did he? I, I didn't remember. Yeah, so you're like, the, you're like you have the spirit of a lion turtle. Okay, well, so, you know, on the one hand, I would say, see, they've kind of been very subtly seeding this all the way. But on the other hand, I know what your counter argument to that would be, and I agree with that. If they were seeding it, they could have seeded it better. Like specifically in the library, there could have been like uh, he could okay. have said something about what a lion turtle is, or <laughs> you know, this this kind of reminds me of like um, in uh, that one season of Doctor Who where they kept seeing like the crack in the universe, uh-huh, yeah, um, and then th- that doesn't get handled until the end. Like that. Like they should have taken that approach. Like this thing keeps popping up and it's mysterious and it's like commented on like, Hey, this is really important, but we can't deal with it now. Instead. It's just like, they just dropped in some pictures of lion turtles and thought that was going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the, I, really the, the critical, the critical issue of the lion turtle is not even so much the lion turtle. It is the midi chlorian bending. So let's talk about midi chlorian. All right. Huzzah. Yes, we are this- finally, <laughs> This has Eric has, has uh, unlike the lion turtle, the midichlorian bending has been seeded from the very beginning of this podcast. <laughs> yes, I've been I've been laying the foreshadowing and groundwork necessary <laughs> to discuss midichlorian bending. All right. So, so specifically, what do you mean by midichlorian bending? Well, he he bends the midichlorians out of Ozai, <laughs> right. enabling for making it so that he can never use the force again. Right. So. Yes, yeah. So this is the problem because it provides a, a like a weird kind of – okay, I want to split this up because I want to talk about it on a plot level and then I want to talk about midi-chlorian bending because they're two separate things. Um, on a plot level, it is an entirely cheap device because it comes out of nowhere. It's not seeded at all. We never hear about energy bending mm-hmm. on any level so that when it comes out of nowhere and is literally just dropped into that scene, like 
All right, he beat Ozai. What's he going to do? Oh, here's a flashback reminding us that the lion turtle talked about energy bending like 10 minutes ago. Oh, here we go. Energy bending's happened. He knows no power. Actually, actually, so, it's even worse than that. Uh, that flashback yeah. to them talking about energy bending, we didn't hear that the first time. Oh, that, see, I was, wasn't sure. I was like, I don't think they showed that, but I could be wrong. That, okay, that, so was, a pe- that was something that the lion turtle told him in that conversation, but we didn't hear it in that first conversation. Oh, it's so cheap. It's so cheap. So on, it's even worse. On the, yeah. on the other hand, energy bending plays into an aspect of the Avatar mythos that I think Korra pulls on, which I like. Yes. And I actually like this idea of setting up the Avatar as having a tie to something deeper than just the expression of the elements. So I really like energy bending. I think energy bending as a power doesn't feel cheap. Like the fact that it exists isn't cheap to me. The way it is handled and introduced is a total absurd plot device. And it's kind of a disappointment given that they had so much time with Aang wrestling with his moral dilemma. And he effectively has his moral dilemma solved for him by the lion turtle's magic powers. Um, I, I'm glad you said all that the way that you did, Eric, because I've been – I've been trying to think of a way that I could mention this without being spoilery. I, I will just, I'll hitch on to what you just said, Eric, and I will say that things that are dealt with in the series Korra that we haven't gotten to yet, in retrospect, in hindsight, make this bothers me less because yeah. I, kn- I know what's coming in Korra. However, as the story stands right now for someone like Arlo, who's watching it for the first time, this is a huge deus ex machina. Um, and it could have been handled much better. It how should did Nicorian Bidding read to Arlo? Like, that's what I want to know. How, Arlo, how, did it, how, did, how did it read to, to you, like Arlo? Like, what did the, you think of this? I, so, okay. While I understood that everything to do with the lion turtle and the introduction of midichlorian bending was a complete deus ex machina, and it, it, it is a cheap device, at the same time, I really – I wound up really loving, like, the, the way it plays out in the finale because – so Aang has been wrestling with this moral dilemma uh, for a while now. And I think something really important happens in that final confrontation with Ozai. Uh, so he enters, so his chakra gets unblocked. Like Ozai, you know, bats him around and like he basically winds up functioning as Aang's chiropractor and un- yeah. unblocks his chakra. It's, it's, ac- uh, it's acupressure is what happens. It, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he enters the avatar state and I'm not sure I ever like, I, I um, actually think that was a bigger deus ex machina than the lion yeah, turtle. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about what, as Nick refers to as shocker amnesia in a little bit, but <laughs> see, see this shit doesn't really like it, it bothers me, but it, it at the same time, it doesn't. No, because I, I'm, I'm a hundred, I'm a hundred percent with you, Arlo. I, I recognize that these sort of issues exist, but they don't bother me in the slightest. I'm, com- yeah, I'm 100% like I, down for the story. So. I recognize it's cheap, but it's still the, – the, the emotion of it works for me, and I'll tell you why. Because Aang enters the Avatar state, and I, I'm not sure I ever articulated this in the show before, but something always bothered me about when he entered the Avatar state. Like, it was really terrifying and a little badass when he entered the Avatar state, but it didn't feel like Aang. Mm-hmm. And that's because it wasn't. 
And so I thought it was really important and really satisfying that he, you know, he, he, there's that awesome moment where he's speaking with like the voices of every avatar before him, you know, like, like telling Ozai that his reign is over now and he's about to deliver the death blow. Um, and then Aang is able to fight through all of that, exits the avatar state and regains agency, which he hasn't done before in in these big situations where he's called upon the avatar state and he makes the decision himself that instead of you know does despite what the other you're right he interprets the advice that the other avatars gave him in the way that that ang would and he regains agency and he instead of killing ozai has like a, a spiritual battle with him and i love that we see uh, Ozai's energy, Ozai's life force nearly overtaking him. But in the end, Aang wins out and you know, sort of spiritually defeats Ozai. And so again, I recognize that the way that we get there it was not that they did not lay the groundwork for it. It is a, a cheap plot device, but at the same time, the payoff of it really worked for me. It works even for me. I'm, I'm, complaining about this but i find that this episode works really great in the moment these the problems i have are problems that become apparent to me in analysis and discussion while i mull over things while i'm watching the episode it's it's a blast i you know maybe a little bit less the sudden introduction of midichlorian bending just because that actually it wouldn't have taken much to see that just a little better you know what i mean like that would really it would not have taken much um, and, and it's unfortunate because there is a conflict inherent in that moment, which is that if Aang is not um, truly centered, it can destroy him. And they introduce that conflict while it's happening. By the time you know that that conflict is there, it's over. And more than anything, that is the moment that falls. That's the only moment for me that falls flat in, like while watching because it's not. you don't have any fear of that when it starts. And you should have been afraid of that outcome when things started. Mm-hmm. That aside... Everything else pretty much works, including the resolution of Chakra Amnesia. Just because Avatar, him going into the Avatar state and like pulling in all the elements in orbit around him is just such a fucking incredible visual yeah. that it, it just totally works. Because up to this point, we've known the Avatar state is scary. This is the first time we've seen the full power of the Avatar state, of like what the Avatar can be and why the Avatar is, is able to complete its mission in the world. Because he's, he's basically a scroll, like he's fantastic four in one. He's, yeah, he's, he's a super he's a super scroll. Super yeah, scroll, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I found an interesting piece of trivia, by the way, about that uh, the sphere of the four elements. Um, well, first of all, I had noticed this, but the trivia includes the fact that Ang summons those elements to him: uh, air, fire, earth, and water, in reverse order uh, of the Avatar cycle. So the Avatar cycle goes: water, earth, fire, air. Um, and he draws them to him in reverse order. Uh, but the fascinating trivia was that um, in that sphere, the elements are in order from closest to furthest from Aang, the way that Aristotle said the elements place themselves in nature, earth, water, air, fire. Wow. <laughs> I have no idea if that was intentional. I don't know if the writers were like, oh, Aristotle places a, a significance of the natural elements that, this way, so... That's what Aang's sphere will look like. But I think that's a fascinating piece of trivia that someone dug up. 
I like that. That's really I like that a lot. That's that, and I would not be surprised if someone, be it the writers or at least the artists who are drawing it, mm-hmm. had some had some information on that. But it's a very it's a very satisfying fight. The fight is great. I like that that Ang gets himself turtled at the end, um, and <laughs> can't do it. And then and then the the un, the holy wrath of Ang tearing down like spires as he goes after a very scared Ozai, and yes. it's really satisfying to watch a terrified. Ozai running away. Yes, um, is just a real. It's a really satisfying sequence of events. And as much as the um, energy bending kind of comes out of nowhere, the spinning shot as he catches his hands to use it is just an awesome shot. Mm-hmm. That is just a fantastic visual moment. So, yeah. like I said, it, it all works in the moment for me. It all works in the moment. Um. Okay. Uh. So let's talk about some of the other characters then. Um, we talked a little bit about Zuko and Katara. I mean, are we, how do we feel about their resolutions? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, I came away from this, a Zutara shipper. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> like to the, like I was, I was super like about Aang and Katara and I'm still really glad you know they got their ending, but man, it really felt like Zuko and Katara should have wound up together. <laughs> <laughs> it, the it, Aang and Katara ending up together felt a lot more forced than I remembered it feeling in this ending. I I still I still think it works, especially especially because Zuko also has May. Right. Um. I, I'll tell you if they hadn't if they hadn't sort of seeded from the very beginning of the show this kind of the question of a romance between those two, like the the very first time they see each other. There's the whole, he's looking at her through, you know, the hazy lens. It's got the the Vaseline lens or whatever, the, the, the glamour shot, and her eyes are sparkling. From the very beginning, they set that up. If they hadn't done that, if it had been just like the Ember Island players presented it, where I love you like a brother, I wouldn't want it any other way. If it had been like that the whole time, there's no way they wouldn't have put Zuko and Katara together. You it's know, true. I- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, how I'm going to rationalize this to myself is, is this: Zuko and Katara are one of those. They're like the two friends in your group who constantly like toy with the idea of like, should we, like, should we get together? But then in the end, they they both of them realize it would never work, and then they they go back and settle down with you know their respective significant others. That's that's why I have to rationalize this to myself. I'll just tell you right now, one of the uh, spinoff comics is about the affair that they have. No, I'm kidding. Are you? I'm, are you I'm, I'm totally <laughs> kidding. To like, what, are you fucking kidding? The, <laughs> the thing, the thing with them is that I actually think them not ending up together, like Zuko and Katara, is, is the right move. That is absolutely the right move. But Katara and Aang ending up together after Aang's like friend zone freakout at the end of uh, Ember Island players is just not earned. Like, it's just not really earned. It's not that I can't see them ending up together. It's that I don't think the show really earns it. And it, 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 I mean, I'm going to just keep going back to the idea that this is not a three season show. This is a four season show where book four is <laughs> is is energy, basically. Book four of Avatar is energy. And instead, we got the Zuko road trip opening of book four energy. And we're forced to wrap up a lot of plots in the last bits. Um, this is so that. this is so interesting because the I mean everybody that knows that it's in a position to know says this was always meant to be three seasons. And you, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're 
kind of talking me into it. You are convinced this should have been four seasons, that it should have been longer. Uh, when we get to Korra, like we'll see where we stand when Korra is over. Korra actually runs four seasons. It was originally meant to be a 12 episode single season show. Yeah, I, Korra plays act to me actually as a a, a standalone story followed by a three se- three season show okay. is kind of how. Which actually, I'm reading a book series right now by Brandon Sanderson, which is like he did one book and he liked it and started writing a book two and realized he was writing a trilogy mm-hmm. and and then so like those characters have four books even though the main part of their story is the trilogy and that's kind of how Korra reads. This, like I said, it's not that you couldn't have finished up the show in three seasons, but I just feel like they had this other chunk of plot that was very disconnected from book three Mm. that um, they really had to rush through. They rushed through a lot of pieces, and the show did not rush through things up to that point. You know what I really think the problem was? I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think the problem was they were so tied into the dramatic effect of having the invasion come the invasion come midway through the third season and have it be like a really surprising, terrible defeat. Um, and that, that is dramatically on paper. That sounds like a great idea. Like, oh, we're going to psych people out, and then it's going to completely change the direction of the the season for the you know for the, for the next twelve episodes or whatever. I think they were so hyped on that idea that they didn't stop to like it was it's like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park you know you thought about it you know, you're slapping it on lunch boxes um they didn't stop to think about what that actually would mean in terms of how the rest of the story would have to be structured i i think that's it it's probably i mean it's definitely part of it but but it leads to like this this weird way in the phoenix king especially where they have to backtrack a lot of plot ideas like toff being like well ang being like oh i'm going to fight him afterwards that's why we've been wasting all this time I, I actually, I was going to call that out. I actually think that's kind of clever. Now, it doesn't necessarily solve the fact that the pacing of the show has been off. It, it, it doesn't fix the pacing problems, but it kind of answers a question that we've raised a couple times about why all of a sudden they don't, like, why are they stopping? Why does every episode begin with them just goofing off? There's always, like, one person in the group that's like, we need to get serious and everybody else just wants to chillax. And it's been Sokka up till this point, but all of a sudden Sokka's really laid back and we've called that out before. And now we find out why. Yeah. I think that maybe they could have been a little more um, careful with what Aang was feeling mm-hmm. because ultimately like there'd be sort of like a shrug at the fact that they were goofing off and then they would just move on. And I do appreciate that they at least did backtrack it. A little bit, but it definitely was. It felt like a backtrack. I felt like well, I think maybe we need to explain what's going on here, and that Ang's waiting to do afterwards. And in fact, specifically, they needed to do that, and then they needed to come up with another threat that maybe we should have known about earlier, which is that o- Ozai's going to burn the world. Like it's like I mean, like it's really convenient because Ang's like, I don't need to fight him until after, and then Zuko's like, Well, just so you know, I actually know about a plan my father has that I didn't tell you about until now. So, I mean, it, 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 it gets the plot moving. It's very effective, but it's definitely, it feels like, oh, shit, we got we to gotta get these pieces lined up. Mm-hmm. Let's get that done right now. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's never bothered me, the fact that uh, we, like, we've come back to that war meeting on a couple occasions now, the war meeting that he was finally invited to, but we didn't get to see what happened in there. Um, that's come up a couple times once where I suggested that that is 
that they discussed the fact that, uh, you know, this invasion's happening. That's how everybody knew the invasion was happening. That's why they were so prepared. That's what that war meeting was about. Um, and now we find out that they certainly mentioned that, but this is actually what that war meeting was about. The problem with that war meeting was the show didn't really let us know that it was hiding anything from us. Like yeah. it, it really underplayed that war meeting. Um, so we didn't quite realize that there was information that Zuko has that we don't. And that information is kind of important. Again, this is not like a huge disaster, but it's definitely one of those little things that they, that they actually had done a really good job seeding things in season two mm-hmm. and, and didn't quite pull off that level of, of tightness this time around. But there's a lot of really good stuff there. And I, I, I feel like I've been a little down and I wanted to talk about these things that were sort of problems for me, but I really do love this finale. And I would like to, if you're okay with it, briefly uh, sing an ode to General Sokka because yes. his his entire bit of the battle is maybe my favorite part on a visceral battle level because from the moment of like them getting on that first airship leading to airship slice mm-hmm. and yeah. everything that happens after that is just i mean that is some epic awesome action shit going on during those entire airship battles uh director Joaquim dos santos won the best directing in an animated television production uh, in the 2008 Annie Awards for his directing of the last two episodes. Well he deserved. deserved it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been a huge Sokka fan from the beginning. I, I thrill every single time Sokka gets to do something smart and he comes up with a plan. And uh, so it was, I thrilled at every single thing that he did. He was completely in charge of this, this part of the mission. Even Toph didn't question him. And, and, he gets to have little Sokka joke moments that don't undercut his abilities, which I really like. Like he has a lot of little jokey moments and like my favorite being goodbye space sword or whatever oh, he says. Man, one of the sad moments of the episode. Yeah. That was, that was, that was tragic to this day. It breaks my heart that, uh, not only did he lose boomerang, but fucking space sword is just, man, him losing boomerang that moment where like, like he looks at Toph and he's like, Nothing yeah. boomerangs coming back tough. Looks like this is the end. And she I, cries. I had, I, had, I had tears in my eyes. Like it felt really real. Mm-hmm. And then luckily Suki swoops in and saves the day. Yeah. Uh, that, that moment maybe felt like the most real moment of danger to me in the episode when they were doing that. Even though intellectually I knew they were never going to kill Toph and Sokka, the way they play that moment and build to it feels really real. It does. And and it makes the the tension release of Suki hanging off the side of the airship as it wrecks in, just awesome. Mm-hmm. Just perfect, yeah. perfect. That was tension. that was a very that was a Miyazaki pose, by the way. That was very Probably. much uh, uh, Nausicaa. Nausicaa, yeah. Her hanging off the side of her little glider. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I I just loved everything with those with the war balloon stuff, especially because that and there and there is something they did set up really well. Like what a payoff. To the war balloon setup from season two, right. I think. Yeah. When we when we first got war balloons and had the ending moment of them finding yep. a war balloon, and yeah, okay, we've seen them kind of have war balloons since then, but this is the true payoff of that war balloon moment: is them using them not just in battle, but as the vehicles of their genocide against the Earth Kingdom. Yeah. 
it, it it's a great payoff. That's the kind of payoff that they're really good at when they set their mind to it, and I I love it. I just love it. I love everything about the airship battle. I think it is, on some weird way, my favorite thing about these episodes. Even though I like a lot of other things, just because it's so perfectly paced and so perfectly set up, and Sokka has built to this moment, and it is beautiful, beautiful payoff to where Sokka's come. Uh, totally, I completely agree. And the um, sometimes when there are when a show or a, a movie or whatever has multiple battles that they intercut back and forth. Sometimes it dri- it drives me nuts. Like sometimes I don't know they they cut too quickly that we don't get enough of one battle before we cut to another. I think all of the intercutting between the various battles in these episodes was superb. It is as I as I have said before Gundam like, and I mean that in the absolute most praiseworthy way. This is one of those things that I I go back to Gundam for are these multi staged battles at the end where there's like. Every single payoff you need in battle all starts happening at once, and it just it it's like catnip to me. And no one can pull. You're right, Paul, because a lot of times when they do it, it just feels like evading ever having to pay anything off in the battles. Like it just feels like cutting away to stall the end of the battles. Whereas this is like a constant escalation of tension. Every time you cut from one piece of the battle to the next, it flows into the next piece and makes you. It just ratchets up the tension to the next level, and it's it's absolutely perfectly structured and you never know when you're going to get out and when you get out of a scene you're like no 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 wait but oh, hold on wait, i do want to see these people and that's exactly what you want out of a battle like that yep we uh we should say some words about uh toff's metal bending because yeah like she says you could stand to mention it more yeah have i ever <laughs> mentioned how sweet it is that you invented metal bending uh when she i love and and Anytime one of these characters does something like this, and it happens twice in this finale, uh, Toph wraps the metal mm-hmm. around herself, and then like Spider-Man's across the ceiling. Yes. That was crazy. Um, and then Aang uh, pu- uh, pulls the rocks around him, creates rock armor, and I I, I love all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Toph is great in this, and I like. I actually really like Toph in this because it's actually a situation where Toph is way out of her element and isn't quite the um, unstoppable badass that she often is because she only really can see what she's standing on, and they're standing in air, basically. Right. So I like that there are ways in which Toph is super powerful and useful in this battle, and there are ways in which this is not Toph's ideal battlefield, and, and, and I that, need to do a good job with that. And that makes it... the. So we should talk about how this is the culmination of every character's journey. It kind of is the culmination of Toph's character arc because she starts on the show in a place where she can do everything for herself. She doesn't need help from anybody else. Um, And this is completely about her. She puts her trust 100% in Sokka. Um, like she, she throws them up into the air before, I mean, she just trusts him that yes, there's an airship there and she launches them up into the air and then they have to catch her. And it's just amazing. Like she, he drags her around the ship. Like at one point when they come up on top of the ship and, uh, debris starts falling around him, like he crawls on top of her to shield her fucking beautiful. It's goddamn amazing. That was, yeah, that's a really, it's a, it's a really good point about Toph. I hadn't actually thought about it that way, but you're right. This is Toph's um, acceptance of of trusting her friends. Like they are, and at no point is it a is it a difficult thing for her. She's there and trusts them all, and and it they're they're just a real team 
mm-hmm. at this end point. And I love that. Uh, speaking of Toph's character arc, I love that bit at the beginning where she's like, you know, everybody else got to go on a field trip with Zuko. Now it's my turn. And you, you get that little moment where they're walking together and she's just monologuing and Zuko couldn't care less. And she's like, my parents gave me everything I ever asked for, but they never gave me the one thing I really wanted. Their love. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I it's because you can't that. compete with Zuko for fucked up childhood. That's very true. But I also like that as a, as a callback to the fact that, hey, Toph has really rich parents that we never saw again. <laughs> like, it never even thought twice about. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like that. I kind of like that, you know, you get to the end of her story and her story is basically, hey, awful parents, fuck off. And that, that was her story. Like, she never reunites with him. She doesn't care on some level. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> hey parents if fuck off people, that's the message of this Nickelodeon if, show if more people this is the message of this Nickelodeon show if more people could just unceremoniously cut ties with toxic family members the world would be a better place full of happier people <laughs> wow you're that's actually that's actually accurate <laughs> that is kind of the message of the show you, you know the other side of that that I, I actually really do like about this is there, you know it, the, the idea of your found family being really important is shows up in a lot of shows and it is really good and i like that but i do like that there are some examples of not toxic family in this mostly um katara and sokka's father mm-hmm. and that no, they get a happy they, they reunite with him for the 12,000th time on this show. <laughs> I, I actually like, I, I like that. I like that they keep like going in and out of each other's lives because of war and every time are happier to see each other than they were the last right. time. That, that, okay. That makes it sound better. But like when I, when I got to their, their interior reunion at the end, I'm like, this happened two episodes ago. Like this <laughs> same scene just happened. You're not getting me again. Oh yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, imagine if it had, there had been a fourth season. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> How many more reunions could they have gotten with their father? <laughs> At least five. <laughs> and, and then a, a, a necessary, a very necessary point to make about the awesome final costumes everyone gets. Yeah. In this, we get one last character design for everyone. Yeah. A very kind of Earth Kingdomy costumes for some of them, and Ava and Ang's very Avatar outfit. Ang's Avatar, the, the reveal. First of all, that entire scene I want to talk about, but the reveal of his full like avatar robes. Though I don't know why, but I kind of teared up at it. Yeah, it was such uh, such a powerful moment for that character who, you know, all of a sudden he's he's kind of not really a twelve year old kid anymore. Yeah, he, he, I mean, I actually like it. It pairs really well because Zuko's in his Fire Lord mm-hmm. outfit at the same time, and it's. It's just it's very effective. And the the reason I love that scene as a whole is because that is it's finally Aang and Zuko. First of all, I forgot to mention earlier that I still get a thrill every single time Zuko calls the other characters by name. Like it's it's I just love it when we hear him say Aang's name instead of calling him Avatar or whatever. Um and when he when he says Sokka's name, for some reason that just makes it feel like he's genuinely part of the family now. I love the fact that they now use each other's names. A little thing, but it it thrills me. Um, so, and this scene is the moment where they finally admit to each other they use the F word. <laughs> they finally admit to each other that they in fact are friends. Yeah, that was very that was really sweet. nice. That was a great payoff. And it's um, uh, and it's a. a 
parallel or an inversion, I guess. There's lots of inversions in this. There's, it, it's an inversion of the the uh, Sozin and Roku relationship, where Sozin and Roku yeah. started as friends and ended up as enemies, and they broke the cycle. Yep. I, I so, one thing I really like about this, like there's a there's a and maybe because we're going to read the comics, this is, makes me nervous, but because of how that went. There's a there's an element of fear that I felt with them their friendship at this point that that things could go wrong because it had before and that's in my head a little bit I'm a little worried about the comics. Okay. Well, I won't say anything. I I, I don't I don't feel that way. I feel I feel like the the point of the show is that they they broke that cycle. They broke the pattern. <laughs> you can believe that if you want to. God I mean, damn it, Eric. I mean, I I won't. I don't like you being in my life. <laughs> I won't comment one way or the other on on what the comics do with that, but I will say uh, that, Eric, I share your fear of uh, one of the reasons why I typically don't like sort of tie-in material is when, you know, you watch a film or a TV show and it reaches the, the happily ever after ending, and then they do a comic series afterwards, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't. I don't want to see the continued strife. Like I don't want them to have another argument in an issue of the comic. I, I want, I, this is where I want it to end. So I share your, your trepidation about that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it makes me nervous. Um, but, but I, I, I felt it here. It just, that's an expression of how much um, that payoff of that friendship meant to me. Yeah. I really loved so, the fact that in Zuko's, uh, in his speech, he acknowledges the fact that um, the world's pretty messed up after a hundred years of war um, and that rebuilding, it's not going to be easy. Um, I just love the fact that they address, there has not been a magic. This isn't a happily ever after that. Uh, they, they haven't magically fixed the world's problems. There's a hundred years of war that has to be reparations. are going to have to be made. So. Yeah. So one thing we absolutely have to talk about, but have not yet mentioned. So for the for the longest time, we've been talking about how this this was in Avatar: The Last Airbender was in reality the Zuko show, right? And la, especially last season, when the show was treading water a little bit, um, it became the Zuko and Iroh hour. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it became all about Zuko and Iroh, and that to me became the crux of the show. And we get the long-awaited Zuko Iro uh, reunion mm-hmm. here, um, and I love how it begins with you know Zuko is very wary of reuniting with Iro. He builds up the courage to walk in to Iro's tent, and Iro's asleep, and Zuko just smiles to himself and sits uh, cross-legged and, and just waits. And I really like that. And then obviously the actual reunion between the two of them was I, I that was probably the most emotional moment of this of, of this finale for me and i thought it i think it sums up um i think it sums up every everything that that has been building through this series between the two of them it sums it up so well um you know iroh says i was never angry with you uh i was sad because i was afraid you lost your way and zuko admits i did lose my way and then iroh says but you found it again and you did it by yourself. And I'm so happy you found your way here. And I think it's so important. I, th- I think that is the reason why Zuko had to have that heel turn at the end of season two. Because it would have been, you know, it would have been fine and dandy if he had, you know, 
switch sides and seen the light at the end of the second season, but that would he he just would have been just like he had always you know followed what others wanted for him. He would have just been following Iroh's footsteps because he had that betrayal. He's had this season uh, to find his own way for himself, and I think that is incredibly important. And I I could not be more pleased with how it turned out. I agree wholeheartedly. I don't think I can say anything of worth beyond that on that point. And I, I agree. It, it it is satisfying because of how they they let him backslide. It's it's one of my favorite moments in the series and how it hurts when it happens and it earns everything else that happens afterwards. Yeah. God, that that was such such a beautiful scene between the two of them. Yeah. We uh so, we didn't even mention the uh the league of uncomfortably buff old dudes. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the, the first acceptable use of Boomy ever. <laughs> right? Still not great. Right. Yeah. It was so it was so great to see him as like a badass earthbender. We're like, "Oh, he does have a use." He, he was still just just slightly too much for me, but he was so much better here than he ever has been. Definitely, and yeah, I, I loved them. I loved the the order of the White Lotus. I thought they were awesome. That one, another, that another one. great payoff. Another great payoff. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, by the way, um, listen. I want to let you know since we were talking about outfits. If you're interested, I um. I'll make sure that if there's show notes, this goes into it. I, I on, on Pinterest, I actually pinned a series of images which people put together of every single outfit for each character. Oh, wow. Um, so I'll make sure that that gets shared. I'm not sure that it is a comprehensive list of every single outfit, but um, we do have uh, Aang, Sokka, Katara, Azula, Toph, um, Meili, um, Suki, and I think I have Zuko in there too. So... Um, Anyways, it's out there. It's it's worth taking a look because it actually is interesting, the costumes they put them in at the end. I think it's a very interesting change to the costumes we've seen. And, and the costuming in the show, fake costuming, is one of its um, best attributes, in my opinion. That I, I, will I, I, absolutely go in the show notes. I'm, I'm fascinated to see this. Um, all right. One, one last detail that is important for us to mention before we move forward is um, Zuko's final conversation with his father yeah so so that's a little unresolved mm-hmm. yes yes it is actually maybe a lot unresolved given the rest of the episode resolving everything about his mother about where's my mother i i will tell you that the uh the mother plot line was intentionally unresolved they um they actually had a scene uh that was um that was storyboarded for these episodes that involved uh, Ursa, their mother, but the, they decided to leave that out. Uh, They specifically cut that out so that the show could end with Zuko saying, where is my mother? Like going to his father and saying, where is my mother? Um, And I'll just remind you that there are comic books coming. (laughs) So that is actually so. Are we going to get some of that in the comics? Is this something we're going to pick up a little yeah. bit of? Yes. All right. That yes. makes me feel good. It is, it is still one of those things where like that's great, but you 
in, in an ideal world, you shouldn't have to read a comic book to get a payoff to a long-standing. No, no, but even without, like even if there isn't a resolution that comes later in in tie-in material, I still like even if this was the end of the story, I still kind of like it because for the same reason why I liked Zuko. Uh, you know, acknowledging that the world hadn't just magically been fixed, that there was still a lot of work they were going to have to do. That's um, true. And it's a good final moment for, for Zuko to confront his father like that. Yeah, it implies that there is more story to come. So. Yeah, I, you know, I think the difference there is that one implies that the character stories are going on and the other one feels like opening up a mystery that we're not going to solve. And I, I think maybe that's why they ring a little different mm-hmm. in how we're discussing them. Yeah. So it's not bad. But it is definitely a, a kind of a weird um, not – there's ways you can do unresolved that's sort of a resolved unresolved in that <laughs> the intent of this is that we are done with this idea in the story. But we are letting you know that these characters will – their lives are going to go on. And then there's kind of the unresolved, which is like, yeah, here's a mystery. Nope. I'm not explaining <laughs> that. And and it felt a little more like the latter um, – Whatever it, it happens, I mean, like maybe maybe uh, maybe the comics will cover it in a way that will make me feel less like like it like Arlo, like you said that maybe they shouldn't be opening threads up that way. But that said, I I will be interested in that plotline okay. in the comics. So, any thoughts on Ty Lee joining the Kyoshi Warriors? Hilarious! I love that. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, I, I think it's perfect. I don't know why it didn't occur to us earlier in the story. Yeah, yeah I, I never would have called that. Um, I love. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen more May. Like I understand it, yeah, yeah. not a fit. Uh, get it, it may not have fit. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's a pun. Um, there's so much going on in these episodes that I kind of get why she wasn't around more. But I, I, I just I love the as much as I did become a reluctant Zutara shipper. Um, I I really love the relationship between Zuko and May. And so I'm I'm glad that had a little well, there was a little button on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad they did go back to that. that. I think that that relationship is very important, uh, not just to the story, but to both characters development. So I think it was good that they went back to that. I would have liked in a in a perfect world, we would have gotten some May Tylee stuff in the finale. But, you know, you only have so much room. So, I mean, like and in the in the action finale stuff instead of just showing up in the coda. But yeah. You know, we get what we get, so that's okay. You know, one thing I really liked about this finale is that uh, I was worried just because I had seen, like, uh, I, I know I, I wasn't supposed to be perusing the Avatar wiki oh, Lord. leading up to this, um, but I had seen that there were a lot of characters, in the, like a lot of previous characters. I knew they were going to come back for this finale. And in the back of my mind, I was a little whenever, like... I think like the the final like Russell T Davies final like Doctor Who episode like before the the specials like at the end like all the important characters from David Tennant's run come back. I enjoyed that. People have complained about that and I get it, but I enjoyed it. But there's also always this fear that I have that it's going to wind up like uh like the Veronica Mars movie which I liked, but the Veronica Mars movie feels to me like it basically like it it has a story that comes to a screeching halt every time Veronica's like, 
hey, mm-hmm. there's this person I, I used to know a few years ago. Let's stop and spend five to ten minutes with them for no reason. And again, I enjoy the Veronica Mars movie as a longtime fan of that show, but it really did feel like unconscionable fan service. Mm-hmm. A lot of it did. And so I was worried that we were going to fall into the same trap here. And instead, for the most part, I thought it felt really organic. Like we get June and her sheer shoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, she comes back, and th- that wasn't uh, that didn't uh, seem distracting. Uh, we get the the Order of the White Lotus, you know, with the uh, Paku and Piandao and all of those guys. Um, it just it felt like all the characters they brought back they they did it in a really uh, organic way that didn't distract from everything else that was going on. But but I, I how did we get the swamp benders, but not the cabbage merchant. <laughs> That's a good question, though. I want to point out that the swamp benders' presence is so minimal in these episodes <laughs> that I didn't even notice them the first time. Yeah. In fact, I was also disappointed that the cabbage merchant uh, did not seemingly have a role in this. But for all we know, he was in that crowd scene at the end. I. I need to go back and look, like go you know frame by frame. Great? You know what I think the alternate ending for the show probably was, and I'm sure it had to be cut due to time constraints. <laughs> but I feel like the original ending was so Ang and Katara kiss, you know, the camera's like pulling back and back and back. Eventually it would have pulled back far enough that you would see in the rubble of the Ang Ozai fight the cabbage merchant on his knees sobbing over yet another ruined <laughs> uh cabbage cart. He just screams to the heavens, My cabbages and then that's when the end <laughs> I like to imagine that as the Fire Nation ships of doom roll over those forests, burning everything, that somewhere down there, a last agonized scream of my cabbages <laughs> was let out before everything burned around him. Can we uh, can we get a comic book about the cabbage merchant? I think there needs to be a spinoff. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want I want like a like a a, a Zeppo style. Uh, <laughs> episode about the cabbage merchant like all of this crazy shit happens around him and he's just trying to sell cabbages <laughs> that's what i want oh maybe fingers crossed <laughs> so so do we need to um do we need to check in on what bending style i, I think are? so i think uh, we've come to the end of one story we should probably revisit um arlo you go you go first I feel like I'm boring because my answer hasn't changed. It's only deepened. I would love to be an earthbender. Okay. Has that, that is the, has that been your answer every time? I feel like it has. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I, I love the, I don't know. I, I, I love the idea of, it's weird to say, cause I know they all like commune with nature. Like they're all drawing from the, the four elements of nature, but I love the way that earthbending very physically, like, you know, pulls things up out of the ground, creates things out of soil. And just, you know, you get stuff like Toph, uh, like she invents metal bending because that's related to the earth. And, you know, she, you, you can like pull rock around yourself to form a suit of armor. Like, I just really love all of that. Okay. All right. Eric. Uh, So I'm going to go, and this is my honest answer, but it also serves as a, I realized as I was about to answer it as perhaps a um, precursor to our next show watch of Korra, which is that I'm going to say that I, right now I don't want to be a bender. I want a space sword. 
Oh, nice. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you. I, I meant to ask the question uh, during this show of what, uh, how do we feel about the non-bending characters versus the bending characters? But uh, Okay, in that case, uh, fuck earthbending, I'd rather have a meteor sword. Too late, I got the meteor sword. <laughs> oh! Eric went into the Earth Kingdom and searched through the, the burnt <laughs> shell of that forest and found... I've, I imagine the space sword is embedded in a rock somewhere like Excalibur. <laughs> and only one, one uh, lowly cabbage merchant can withdraw it. That's right. <laughs> there you go. That's beautiful. Uh, good on you, man. Good call. There was a great moment that we didn't mention where Sokka is like, Earth, air, fire, water, fan and sword. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Um, all right. Well, I'm not. Uh, so I think the first time we asked this question, I went airbending. And then the second time I was like, you know, I actually, um, because of, Uncle Iroh's sort of philosophical discussion about the nature of firebending. I think I, I think I might be leaning towards firebending. I'm going to come full circle and uh, I, I just, I have to go back to airbending and it really, it comes down to the, the sort of air nomad mentality or whatever uh, that, that goes along with that is kind of what I aspire to. I'm not there. I probably never will be there. I have much more Zuko in me than I have Aang, but I, that's what I would like to be. So I kind of lean towards airbending. All right. Cool. I like how we all had different answers. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, damn it. So... It, it's it's really interesting. So I've I've done one of these spinoff podcasts before, and like so, even though we've reached the end of Avatar, like I like I you know we saw more of this show right left to go. Like when when we got to the like, I'm sad enough that we're done discussing Avatar. Like I'm excited to talk about Korra, but I loved Avatar so much that I'm sad that we're done with it. I can only imagine how I'm going to feel once we're done with Korra like the end of the podcast as a whole, like it's going to be sad. Yeah. I don't want I mean, like, I think what we're like hitting these like little silences here at the end, because I don't think any of us wants to say what it is, which is that we're done talking about avatar. Yeah. Like we've reached the end of it yeah. and none of us want to really say that. And it's, it's tough. I, um, so I'm going to get the ball rolling on that and say that I have really enjoyed talking about avatar. It has, I, I know that there are times where it feels like maybe weaknesses that I didn't quite key into before he came out a little more strongly this time which is the case but i also really deepened love of a lot of the aspects of the show and i it it's this was a show that was worth talking about on this level and not all shows are so i have really loved revisiting it and i'm very excited for the comics and i'm excited about cora because it's going to be a very different conversational experience whatever everyone thinks about it um so Thank you for for riding with me on these this three seasons of of a really great show. Yeah, and I I, I have had an absolute blast discussing this show. I'm so glad, uh, Paul, that you forced me to do this uh, because I've uh, I've always wanted to watch more like TV animation. Like I, I mean, by which I mean like I watch stuff like Bob's Burgers. And, and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I've always wanted to watch like uh, animated shows with more of a dramatic bent to them. And I think Avatar was like the perfect gateway. 
uh, for that. So I'm really, really glad that we got to do this, and I am super pumped for Korra because I know next to nothing about it. I don't really know what to expect, so I'm I'm excited to see how we all feel about that. Uh, and I also super pumped to talk about Korra because, as Eric has alluded to, it's going to be a different conversation than this one. Um, and it will feel even more like a, a legacy show to me, I think, in, in that it's going to be the three of us discussing it hot on the heels of discussing Avatar. So I just I, I, I'm fascinated to see how the legacy aspect of it plays to me on this viewing. So can't wait to get to that. And I'm, I had a blast talking about this. Uh, it was very emotional. It deepened my appreciation for it. As I said, I have much more love for Azula now having talked to you guys about her. Um, so this was a huge success. Thank both. Thank you both for, for indulging me on this adventure. Absolutely. And uh, thank every one of you at home for joining us uh, as always you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website theavatarreturns.com uh, links will also be posted on our parent show's site gobbledygeekpodcast.com or just subscribe to the show on itunes and every episode will be hand delivered to you personally by our chipper little flying email lemur uh, monkey yahtzee uh, who did not get a shout out in the final episode <laughs> Uh, you can feed the lemur by dropping us an email at tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find us on social media. Like us on Facebook for all of our updates or follow us on Twitter. The show is twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. So... Next week, as our podcast prepares to transition into phase two with the critically acclaimed follow-up series, The Legend of Korra, uh, we're not quite ready to say goodbye to these characters just yet. Dark Horse Comics has been publishing the official in-canon continuation of the Avatar story in a series of graphic novels following the further adventures of the Aang Gang, uh, written by American-born Chinese and Boxer and Saints author Jean Luen Yang, with art by Japanese wonder team Guri Hiru. Uh, these stories act as a sort of bridge between the original series and the world of Korra. There are four collected volumes to date, and we will be discussing each of those beginning next week with Volume 1, The Promise. After that, we'll begin our watch of The Legend of Korra, and we'll cover another volume in the comic series in between each season of Korra. So join us next week for the first installment of the comics. Until then, remember, being part of the group also means being part of group hugs.
A singer in a smoky 